1: What's up, Zinger Nation? Welcome back to Moon or Bust, your home for all things crypto at Benzinga. I'm Logan. I'm joined today by Ryan. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. We just got back from Permissionless, one of the biggest crypto conferences of the year.
2: How was it, Ryan? It was awesome. You got some new stickers on your laptop. I do. It's a telltale sign that we were just at a conference. Uh, but yeah, a lot of good hosts, lots of good speakers, and a lot of big news was announced at Permissionless, which I was kind of excited about. I wasn't really expecting all of that new news to come out. We saw Lens.dev. Uh, the new protocol made by Ave was announced and went live, so we'll dig into that a little bit. Uh, but a lot of cool things happening, and we ha- got a lot of interviews from that, so uh, stay tuned. They'll be out next week. Lots of exciting stuff in the works going on behind the scenes. Make sure you're subscribed if you're not
1: already and hit the like if you are enjoying today's show or if your portfolio is down, you have to hit the like button as well. Uh, Let let me know if you're trading, if you're buying or you're selling. If you're buying, put a one in the chat. If you're selling, put a zero in the chat. Drop them down below. Ryan, we have an interview today, uh, a pretty interesting one at that. We're going to be talking to somebody who was formerly on the FBI's most wanted list. Uh, was, was he above or below your name?
2: Uh, hopefully he was above my name. Uh, but <laughs> who knows?
1: All right. Well, we'll find out that and way more. Uh, he's going to be teaching us how to launder money with crypto. I mean, how to not get hacked. Um, but just, you know, taking a look at the, the overview of the space, how people are doing this, how these criminals are pulling off these big hacks and how you can stay safe. So make sure you stay tuned for that. That will be happening at 2 uh, but we have some news to talk about Maybe some stuff from the event last week Maybe some stuff from the news But we are going to roll the intro Smash the like button And welcome back Yeah. All righty, Ryan. You want to take a look at the charts at all? Uh, can we talk about Village Dow maybe? Check out Lens. We got a lot of stuff going on this
2: week. Uh, what, what's exciting you right now? I want to take a look at the markets because we looked at them like a week or two ago. We pointed out some key ranges to keep in mind, and it looks like maybe they're holding a support. I, for one, have not been looking at charts lately, but I think it's good that we do an update given where the markets are at. Uh, I saw the stock market was bleeding today, but it doesn't look like crypto is down too much. Uh, But like I said, I have not been paying attention to the charts. It looks like we do have another red candle. Uh, on the weekly timeframe, which is interesting because the stock market hasn't had eight consecutive weekly candles since 1923. Now, I'm pretty sure crypto has never had eight consecutive weekly red candles. It looks like we might be getting that. It closes on Sunday. Are we at eight or is this the seventh?
1: This will be the eighth. Eighth week in a row, red. I don't know if that's ever happened in Bitcoin history. Uh, but regardless, where are you, how are you feeling about the market? Are you buying? Are you selling? Uh, are you holding? What is the move right now?
2: So I'm mostly just holding. Like I said last week, I did buy the dip, got into Ethereum at a pretty good price, got in at just under $1,800 and picked up a couple other altcoins too, which is a pretty risky play. I know you're trying to unload some of that risk right now, uh, but I got some ENS domain tokens. I also got a little bit of Sushi and a a little bit of one other altcoin. It was Polygon. So those three, pretty strong conviction. And I I got in at a good price too, it looks like. I got in at about $7.90. Cents for ENS domains, so I haven't checked the price since I bought it, but that's great. I'm up about 50% on that, especially in these markets. Uh, A little pat on my own back for that one. Uh, where's Polygon at? I feel like I probably did pretty well on all three of these plays. Let's see, at least thus far, because we can have a 50% bounce up and then we can have another 50% correction down. That is
1: tough. 63 cents
2: per Matic token. So I'm up about 20% on Matic over the past week. That's not bad either. Uh, But like I said, it doesn't really matter. We can have a bounce up 20% and we can go down lower. Uh, So I'm fully expecting there to be a a crypto winter if that plays out. I'm prepared. Uh, I'm hoping it doesn't, but we'll see. Only time will tell.
1: So if, you, if this crypto winter does happen, how long is it going to be before we see a bottom? And what, what price might that be at for Bitcoin? For Bitcoin? Wait, for before you say anything, I want everybody to go in the chat right now. Drop the Bitcoin bottom. Okay, got to, got to call it now. Historical significance. This is live on YouTube. It will be recorded. I want you to, to go back and, and see a year from now if you're right or wrong. So document your, your bottom price target for Bitcoin right now. Ryan, go for it.
2: I'm going to go with 20K, and I would say a little bit lower. I would say maybe 15 to 18, but we've printed out so much money over the past year. I think 20K is a good psychological support. That was where our all-time high was in 2017. So that's going to be my price target. What do you think, Logan? Higher or lower?
1: Uh, I think uh, 20, 22, somewhere in there. I don't think they will go too too far below 20. That would be pretty, pretty sad, uh, especially considering all the inflation. Um, but I don't think it's going to take that much longer. I think that, uh, we might have another six to 12 months of some playing around, but these are, this is a really great accumulation opportunity night for humanity in the chat, 12,500
2: oof. I don't want that. Let's hope it doesn't go there, but it's certainly a possibility. I also could see a lot of people thinking 20K is the bottom, and we could capitulate around 20,000, and then have a flash crash again, and maybe go down to fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand. 16, 17,000. But if we do do that, I wouldn't expect it to be there super long.
1: Yeah, I think that if we do hit 20, it will probably be a wick, uh, and mostly just buy orders that were there at the time i don't know if we'll really have the opportunity for it to sit at 20 for too long but uh you know i could be wrong have been many times before but you know at least we can go back now we can we can follow up and see how it's going um what else is what else is on the radar how's luna doing that's a good question
2: let's check it out Uh, i also want to check out sushi because i bought some i want to see if I'm, i'm up on that too
1: all right. Luna is at $0. .000.01, 01 cents. 0.01 cents. Very nice. Good thing it's audited.
2: What's the chart look like? Because I heard a lot of people were making money off Terra Luna after they froze their assets. Uh, obviously, a lot of people lost a ton of money. But over the past week, have we seen a bottom? Has it gone up? Got a good call from Hex214Pony
1: right there. I like that number. Uh you tell me, man. I don't, I don't really know. No, it looks like it's still going down.
2: We'll have a better idea in like a day because the seven-day chart still shows Luna out. Like, I can't even see it. It's like one cent, but it's still the rest of it's completely flat because it's gone so much lower.
1: Yep. Uh, What does it say here? Due to the de-pegging of UST, Luna is experiencing extreme volatility. Pre- please proceed with caution. Terra blockchain was also halted um all right nothing too interesting going on
2: over there well what's interesting about that is they still haven't announced what happened to all their bitcoin do you think they sold it off trying to preserve the peg of ust Or do you think that there's some malpractice going on? Because you would think they would announce where all this Bitcoin has gone. I mean, they had over a billion dollars of Bitcoin in their reserves. It's kind of interesting that they haven't announced what happened with that. Because that would give Terra some inherent value if they were still holding their Bitcoin, right? So I'm wondering why they haven't said anything about the Bitcoin reserves that Luna has held. Um, I believe
1: that the word on the street is that they unloaded their entire clip trying to defend the peg. And they have zero Bitcoin left, uh, which is tough, very tough.
2: But they should make that clear, right? Communication is so important, especially in times of crisis. And they did a pretty poor job at managing the community and announcing what happened. So, I mean, I wish I would have seen some better communication from the Terra Luna team. I don't think this was handled very well. So I'm looking at their wallet right now. They have 300
1: Bitcoin left and they spent 70,000 Bitcoin.
2: (laughs) It's expensive. (laughs) Man, that is tough. All right, I'll put this up on the screen. 70,000 Bitcoin trying to preserve UST. What is UST at? Is it trading any higher than 15 cents or has it gone down?
1: Six Six cents. cents. Not good. Look at that right here. So total received 71,000 Bitcoin. Total sent 70,700. Final balance 313 Bitcoin. Uh, that's more than I have, but that's not 70,000 Bitcoin by any means. Um, yeah, I, I think they, that Doquan announced, LFG announced that they were going to be putting out a full report on where, uh, all the Bitcoin spending went. Um, like you said, Ryan, I don't think that that is public yet. They haven't really announced it. There's still a lot of shady stuff going on behind the scenes, still a lot of confusion out there um and i don't know how much clarity we're really ever going to get uh at least anytime soon
2: here doquan's probably in the middle of the pacific ocean right now on his yacht never to be seen again uh, i was going to
1: say that like i don't i would not be surprised if doquan never showed face in public again or if he you know accidentally dies or gets killed by an angry you know fan or whatever uh it wouldn't wouldn't be too surprising to me seen it, seen it before wouldn't be surprised if, it, if we saw it again what what's interesting this is kind of a funny thing so when we when i say we've seen this before the founder of quadriga cx is the person that i was referring to one of the co-founders of quadriga uh, was just revealed to be one of the main people co-founders of terra which is pretty pretty funny a uh, little full circle moment right there especially if do quan disappears um but yeah so Let's take a look at sushi, Ryan. Why did you pick up sushi? What do you think about Uniswap these days? Governance
2: tokens, cool, not cool. Not the coolest. They were definitely cooler a couple of years ago during DeFi summer. And this is actually down. I got it at like dollar And fifty cents. And honestly, the reason I bought it is because I'm a bag holder. Bought a bunch. And I saw I could get in cheap. Lower uh, the average cost for my investment. So I did that. Did not buy a lot, though. This was the smallest purchase I made last week. Just wanted to accumulate a little bit more coins. But as I did it, I asked myself, when was the last time I even used SushiSwap? And it's been months. I don't really use it. When I want to trade tokens, I'll, I'll either use QuickSwap, Macho, or Uniswap. I don't really go to Sushi. Uh, So it's not something I'm really using. So if it's not something I'm using, should I really be investing in it? So that was kind of my my second thought there. Uh, But I still did purchase some, like I said, a pretty small amount just to increase the size of uh, the the allocation in my portfolio. Uh, But I probably won't be buying more. I mean, it is down about 90 percent from when I started buying. uh, And it's down well over 90 percent from the top. But I, I think Sushi should stick around It is a good protocol, uh, but it's hard to say. I mean, if we see a crypto winter, maybe it won't. Maybe Uniswap will take over. Maybe another DEX will take over. Uh, So it's hard to say, but definitely has been decreasing in price for a long time now. Uh, It's no question that we are in a DeFi bear market, and we have been for over a year. Sushi clearly has some staying
1: power. I mean, they've been through like four founders. They've gotten rugged a bunch, and people still, uh, you know, open source developers still come to the project to push it forward. They've been innovating a lot, um, and I, I don't know. I think that there's some good narrative behind Sushi. So don't blame me on that one. At a buck twenty six, uh, you know, it's tempting. It's tempting, but. Like you said, Ryan, we are in an alt and DeFi bear market, so I'll probably be consolidating into Ether if I can uh, and hopefully get some Bitcoin going as well. One Bitcoin currently costs one Bitcoin. Gotcha. $28,859. What do you think about that? What do we see it go down to? Wick Down to $25,000. That's crazy. That is nuts. All right. Patrick in the chat says, got wrecked on Terra. Do you hold any of it? Sorry to hear that, Patrick Star. Uh, we do not hold any of it, unfortunately. Uh, and also Coin Bureau did have a great update on Luna. Most comprehensive, uh, you know, Luna post-mortem I've seen so far. So uh, shout out to, to Coin Bureau. Great guy. Um, no pun intended there. All right. Ryan, Lens Protocol Arbitrum Odyssey we met the people building both of these projects in the last two days you want to talk about any either of them
2: yeah, you made an account on Lens. I think we should check out Lens and Lenster. talk about maybe what the difference is between them. Uh, but this just launched at Permissionless a couple of days ago. Uh, they had their sign up at their booth. There were like 300 people made their accounts and then 1,000. And now they're up to a few thousand. But very early days, we got some cool swag from Lens. And Ave made Lens. Ave is one of the biggest protocols on Ethereum. It's for lending, a lending market. Now they're making a decentralized social media. It's pretty interesting. Stani, the founder of Ave got banned from Twitter kind of purposefully he was putting out some heinous tweets uh, at first saying that he's going to be appointed I think the interim CEO of Twitter mm-hmm. yeah. tagged Twitter, tagged Elon Musk he was egging on a bunch of people I'm not sure if that worked but then he said maybe I need to go after someone really powerful uh, so then he says well I'm a, I'm a general partner at A16Z now uh, I'm going to be running their fund or so, something like that so a- after he said these heinous things on Twitter he got banned which is exactly what he wanted because he's making a decentralized social media that is censorship-resistant, and it looks really interesting. Logan, I think you know a little bit more about Lens than I do, but I'll definitely be making a count kind of bs honestly i signed the letter uh on lens.dev months ago on both of my crypto wallets that i use hoping to get either an airdrop or early access and now beta is open but for whatever reason i'm not granted permission to claim my handle uh, so that was kind of sad to see but logan i know that you were able to claim your handle you got incentivized uh just like how you have incentivized.eth pretty cool stuff uh have you used this at all have you looked into it anymore since they launched What's your take on it? How do you think the rollout went? Uh, and any other information you can give us on Lens would be appreciated. I think the rollout is going really,
1: really well. Um, we'll take a look at a few of Stanny's tweets maybe to get uh, a more accurate update. But they have something like 6,000 accounts uh, in just a couple of days, few thousand posts, uh, and we did do an interview with David, the uh, PM behind this project as well. So we'll put that out soon. Here is his handle. We can check his profile to see if he's posted any updates uh, on on the status of Lens and all of their users. Let's. I'm trying to figure out how this works. Okay, so basically, it's this is just a protocol. Uh, it's based on the polygon network but there are different applications that use this so this is as far as i can tell the closest thing to a feed that lens has put out uh called lens friends.xyz and what i thought was pretty cool is based on your web3 footprint so they'll go scrape your twitter and they'll find people that you follow that you might be interested in following talk about similar stuff um then you know you could connect with them it will recommend them to you here
2: uh let's see so lens is technically a protocol not a social media itself correct what does that even mean
1: uh it's just like uniswap right so you could you could access uniswap from there from the uniswap front end or you could access it from your computer terminal or you could build your own front end to access it uh the you know protocol is just a series of uh, smart contracts on the ethereum blockchain that you make a call to or a reference via an address, right? So that's what Lens is. Anyone can build their own front end. Uh, it's open. Twitter used to do this. Twitter had this a long time ago where you could use other applications uh, to you know, host your Twitter feed. That does not exist anymore. They wanted to control it. Uh, as they have been controlling everything. Did you lately. see
2: the Did you see the POAP integration on Lens? I just noticed that when you were going through all those different people's profiles. Where? It's pretty cool. Keep scrolling, read the bios. I saw at least one that said you have two shared popes right there. Oh yeah, you have one Poap in common. That was really cool. So it's cool how these are almost like building blocks, right? It's not like Twitter and Instagram talk to each other in Web 2, but in Web 3, it makes it much more possible, where if you use PoApp and you have these NFTs to prove your experiences, now Lens Protocol can use that and show you who else has experienced whatever Poap you got, uh, and it shows you what you have in common, which I think is really cool. All right, let's check out my collection real
1: quick. I'm probably gonna have to switch back to mainnet. Oh no, it doesn't even do that. All right, cool. Um, so yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm guessing this is the one that I have in common with most of these people. This was from the event just two days ago, uh, for the launch. I grabbed the lens, uh, poap here. Uh, but Ryan, in, in case anybody doesn't know about
2: poaps, could you give us a little overview? So Poaps are essentially your Web3 resume, at least that's how I take it. But they give you these NFTs, so they mint them on the XDAI network. So a sidechain or layer two on Ethereum, you don't have to pay high fees, uh, but you can transfer them over to Ethereum if you want. But essentially they're li- like little badges you get for doing different things. So there's like ETH Denver, we got some Poaps there. We've made Poaps for different events that we've done. Uh, and it's really cool to be able to, to collect these different Poaps and prove that you've done different things. Uh, pretty sure it stands for proof of attendance protocol. So that's why I take it as your Web3 resume. You can't make shit up on POAP, right? I mean, you get these for attending an event. It's in your wallet. It's on the blockchain. It's immutable. And 10 years down the line in 2032, I'll have my POAPs and I'll show everybody about how cool ETH Denver was back in 2022. And no one's going to say that I didn't go because I have the POAP from the event.
1: I'm a big fan of Poaps, and I think that a lot of the community is as well because of the scaling uh, that the application has. Their user experience is god awful. Uh, It's really difficult to figure out how to set up your own Poap, but once you do, uh, you know you get the hang of it pretty quickly. Uh, But you know you can create a QR code and make an event. People scan it, and they get this NFT for free. It's all done uh, on the uh, f- formerly known as XDAI Network. Now it's called what? what they Gnosis name? Chain, Gnosis right? Chain, yes. G-N-O-S-I-S. Do they have a token?
2: I think there's a Gnosis token,
1: yes. Ooh. I wonder what the utility is, if any. Perhaps it's just a governance token. Let's see. Fully diluted market cap of $2 billion. That's impressive. Um... Hmm. Where is it? I don't want the chat. I want the info. Project info. Here we go.
2: Great. What rank is Nosus right now?
1: Eighty-three overall, which I think is pretty interesting. That's,
2: I think it's pretty impressive because they don't do much marketing. You don't hear about Gnosis much. But I think it does have a lot of good utility that people might be sleeping on. I mean, I'm not sure what the all time high was, but it seems like it has more utility than a lot of other scaling solutions for Ethereum right now. I know we use DAO house for our DAO and Gnosis chain is one of the best solutions on there, uh, but it can be used for a lot of different things from a technical standpoint. I think it it's probably better than a lot of other chains as well. I don't have much personal experience using it. I've used it for PoEps. I've messed around maybe on a couple other protocols, but I'm not a daily user by any means. But it it looks very promising. Gnosis Chain supports low-cost, stable transactions for projects and users. High
1: Ethereum gas prices and congestion have made it difficult for the ecosystem to function efficiently. Gnosis Chain provides a compatible chain for projects requiring nano transactions or complex transactions that may be prohibitively expensive on Ethereum. Gnosis chain can scale both vertically and horizontally to meet capacity requirements. Um I believe that they're doing some type of roll-up. I'm not sure if it's ZK. Let's figure it out here. Um tokens are required in the minute. Additional bridges exist. Alright, not exactly sure on the let's see, let's check out the governance down here. (laughs) All right, a little bit too deep. I don't wanna uh, have to figure this out right now, but we can definitely come back to this later. Definitely cool applications being built on Gnosis Chain uh, and one that, like you said, Ryan, we don't really hear about very often at all. All right, we have about five minutes until the FBI's most wanted cyber criminal joins the stream to tell us about the crypto landscape and how cybercrime is being done in cryptocurrency, web three and blockchain. Brian, um, what, what are you looking to learn from this interview? What are you looking forward to in particular?
2: I think this is probably one of the most interesting interviews that we've had uh, on our show with the FBI most wanted uh, criminal. I-, I wanna know how he did it. I wanna know how much money he was able to take I want to know whether he's stealing NFTs or whether he was stealing crypto. I want to know how he made a deal with the FBI. It's not Mm. often you hear that someone's on the FBI most wanted list and then all of a sudden isn't. And then all of a sudden is actually working in tech and working in security. I mean, this sounds like something straight out of Ozark. I don't know. (laughs) but It sounds interesting. I'm excited for this interview. Yeah, well, we won't delay it anymore. From Arcos Labs, joining
1: us today is CEO Kevin and expert cyber criminal, Brett. How are you guys doing today? Thank you for joining us. Give me a second as I figure out this camera setup here. All right, I think that works. Uh, We're short on a producer today, but uh, thank you for bearing with us. How are you? Doing great. Uh, Brett, I actually can't hear you, unfortunately. I'm not sure why, but let's start with Arcos. Kevin, you are the CEO of Arcos Labs. Uh, Could you tell us in our audience a little bit about the company, what you do, and why they should care?
3: Yeah, no, sure. So we're an account security company. So we're protecting a lot of crypto platforms. We're working with banks. We're working with a lot of video game merchants. Uh, Quite a broad mix. But the key objective of ARCOS and what we do for our uh, customers is to increase the cost and effort for adversaries so they're not actually profiting from the crimes they're trying to achieve. Um, and that's why we, of course, brought on board the industry's first Chief Criminal Officer, uh, Brett Johnson, to support us in that uh, he has a unique perspective in understanding how do the adversaries think, how do they profit, you know, how do they work together, all those kinds of things.
1: Awesome. Man. And you guys just put out a report uh, two days ago, detailing cyber crime in the blockchain space. Could you tell us a little bit about what you found?
3: Yeah, so we see uh, there's kind of two strong flavors of attacks that we're seeing. People trying to compromise accounts, social engineering, uh, those kind of techniques. Um, and the other is around uh, you know, NFT fraud, frankly. We're seeing a lot of attacks where people are trying to gain as much uh nft assets as they can uh ahead of other people so they can you know resell those assets later on time um and that's something that we've been helping a lot of companies uh ensure the fairness so that you know actual customers of those services want to use it we also do a lot of work with the web3 kind of gaming uh you know play to earn styled um segment so people you know using Ethereum uh kind of backing the in-game currency those kind of things and uh stopping people from using bots and scripts to go mass kind of farm the assets to trade it for different trading cards or whatever it may be
1: all right it sounds like brett's mic might be working now you want to give it a test oh uh, shoot i heard i heard the scratching on it maybe that was something else uh we still cannot hear you unfortunately me. wait 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 oh
4: oh got
1: How it <laughs> Heyo! how are you?
4: <laughs> well, you know, I'm sitting here trying to do tech support as we're trying to talk. So.
1: <laughs> I guess that makes all of us today. Uh, we're glad to have you. And I, I got to know, tell us your background. Tell us your story. How did you end up where you are today?
4: Oh, geez. How did I end up where I am today? Well, United States Secret Service called me the original internet godfather. And the way I got that title was committing 39 felonies because, well, 38 just isn't enough sometimes. I was placed (laughs) on the United States' most wanted list. I had an escape from prison, and I built and ran the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor of today's darknet and darknet markets. It laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels operate today. The 39 felonies had to do with refining modern financial cybercrime as we now know it. Account takeovers, credit card fraud, tax return, identity theft, stimulus fraud, synthetic fraud, you name it, you want to point your finger at someone, I'm the guy. And of course, that does land one in prison, deservedly so. Usually that's where the story ends, but I was very fortunate. Through the help of my sister, my wife, finally the FBI taking me in under their wing, I was given the opportunity to turn my life around and I took it Uh, today. I'm ambassador for AARP. I speak across the planet and I was recently named chief criminal officer for the outstanding security company Arcos Labs.
1: That is incredible. I don't even know uh, where to begin with the follow-up, um, but maybe we could just talk about your work at Arcos. Sure. Um, you know, what does it really look like hands-on? Who are some of these companies you're working with, uh, and what's the day-to-day for
4: you now as the first-ever chief criminal officer? Well, as the first-ever chief criminal officer, there is a learning curve both on my end, <laughs> clients' ends, and the company's ends, and we're 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 really doing a lot of good work to protect our clients and potential clients from the type of individuals that I used to be. My my daily job, I speak to clients. I We come in and we educate clients, first of all, on how the dynamics of online crime operates, knowing those three necessities of online crime. So successful crime requires gathering data, committing the crime, then finally cashing out. All three of those necessities have to work in conjunction. If they don't, the crime fails. That's one of the reasons that you, you never see a single attacker. It's never a single individual which seeks to victimize you or your company. So we educate on that. We talk about the threat intel that's out there, how these attackers are victimizing you, your company, how they seek to do that, You know the upcoming trends, how that's going to look like, what they're going to be looking for, everything like that. Then we talk about how to secure your company against those types of attacks. Arcos is extremely good about identifying automated attacks because now, you know if you look at the the way attacks happen the vast majority is automated and there's a reason i mean you've got millions and millions of bots but human actors are much slower so that number becomes much slower at the same time so it's uh, it's it's about doing that and protecting the overall internet and we do an outstanding job doing that
1: That is excellent. So when it comes to blockchain security, maybe specifically, we'll start with Bitcoin, because there is this narrative, and I think that there unfortunately still is, is that Bitcoin is money for criminals, it's for money laundering. uh, But little do these people know that Bitcoin is a public blockchain. So. What is what does it look like? How How is it advanced? I know, you know, the Silk Road was mostly Bitcoin based, but obviously that's a really bad idea now. Uh, so how do people protect their and their, their identity on public
4: blockchains? Well, let's 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 be honest. I mean, Silk Road, I mean, it, it did accept Bitcoin and it gave Bitcoin a use case. It truly did. A lot of criminals back then didn't really understand the idea of a public blockchain that, hey, every single thing that you're doing the Bitcoin can be traced. And after several arrests, <laughs> you know, they, they've come to find out perhaps maybe we don't need to accept Bitcoin on these dark web marketplaces. As a result of that, you've got more of these more anonymous types of currencies. You've got Monero. You've got Zcash. And that's really what you see this this movement toward as far as laundering money and cashing out. So typically what happens is, is, you know, a criminal group, whether it be ransomware or some sort of fraud, they will have a token. Call it Bitcoin if you want to. So what? how do you wash that out? How do you make something like that from drug trafficking or ransomware payments? How do you make it legal? Well, you take your token. You first put it through something like Tornado Cash or Monero or what have you. You wash it out so you can't trace it. Then it goes into whatever type of, let's say, Ethereum wallets, multiple wallets that you want it into. Now, I've got to be able to, 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 to make that money legal for the IRS. How do I do that? Well, fortunately... There's these things called NFTs, a lot of ape pictures out there. So maybe, (laughs) maybe I will will create some sort of crappy NFT and then use all my Ethereum wallets to buy that NFT and make it look legal across the board. Now, look, that works great for small and mid amounts of money. So a few hundred thousand dollars. But if you've got millions of dollars, hmm can't really justify all those NFT purchases with the, with the IRS. They're going to sit there going $30 million. You sold $30 million of NFTs. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Probably not. So how do you, how do you do that? Well, maybe create your own token, your own crap coin, and then use all those wallets to buy that. So maybe that would do that, or maybe come up with some sort of dummy cryptocurrency exchange or any number of things. So there's any number of ways that you can launder money, with crypto. The, the interesting thing is is that I am a crypto believer. I am. Now, we're going through a bloodbath right now, <laughs> but you know, Bitcoin is not going anywhere. And I view this really as as a moment where we are getting rid of the tokens that really need to be gotten rid of, because we've got mm. a lot of tokens that are out there that are just not they, you were talking about it earlier in the show. What's the use case? Mm-hmm. If it doesn't have a use case, why are you investing in it? Let's say that you're not investing in it, that you're gambling on it. We need to get rid of that idea. We need, We. need. I, I personally believe we need regulation coming in that makes things, uh, let's say, informed regulation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people out there that aren't informed. <laughs> so, but I, I like the idea of that. I like the idea of Web 3.0 of of making our lives more secure, more safe overall. And I think that we're going to get there. I, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in crypto. I'm a firm believer that um, at the end of the day, it's going to make things better for everyone across the board. But right now, I mean, you do have some criminal activity in it. It's not to the degree that it used to be because you've got more mainstream players that are coming in. But, uh, you know, we need to weed out the rest of those scams and fraudsters that, are, that use that and get rid of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Brett, if we can back up, I'm really curious to know how you ended up getting caught and also how you ended up being forgiven.
4: How I ended up getting caught was choosing to break the law. <laughs> <laughs> that would do it. That's always a bad decision. But uh, the way I got caught, it you know, these days, criminal communities are millions of members large. Okay. So if you rise to the top of the heap of that, you've got a lot of law enforcement looking at you, specifically targeting you. The group that I ran was the only group really that was doing any type of organized crime. You had three sites. You had Counterfeit Library, Shadow Crew, Carter Planet. I built and ran both Counterfeit Library and Shadow Crew. A Ukrainian national by the name of Dmitry Golubov built Carter Planet. So the only English-speaking site on the block were my, were owned by me. Um, that got a lot of attention. At the same point in time, we were cashing out. Uh, we were We were spamming for or fishing for debit card details. And back then there was an exploit. If you had the card number and the pin, you could encode a, a physical card, take it to, a, to the ATM and pull out cash. And over 4,000 members, mostly every single day were stealing anywhere from 40 to $60,000 out of ATMs that got law enforcement attention. My forum techie, a guy by the name of Albert Gonzalez, He goes on to be the largest credit card thief in history. But when he was our forum techie, he was doing this cash out procedure. He was in New Jersey one day, broad daylight, stands at an ATM for 40 minutes, feeding in one counterfeit card after another, pulling out $20 bills, stuffing them in a backpack. And it just so happens that across the way, two New Jersey cops just happen to see the guy. They watch him for 40 minutes until one of them says to the other, let me go over and see what this idiot is doing.
5: Mm.
4: <laughs> so they walk up to Albert. Albert's got a disguise on, a wig. He falls apart at that point in time, goes to work for the Secret Service, and that's what ultimately gets the site popped and finally leads to my arrest. Wow. Uh, and forgiving... how were you forgiven? <laughs> well, I had a lot of people that uh, that believed in me, ultimately. My, my sister, my wife, Michelle, uh, finally uh, – an agent by the name of Keith Malarsky of the FBI. He believed in me enough that he took me in under his wing. He gave me references. He gave me advice. From there, that kind of opened up the door for me to come in and speak to companies and start consulting. And it took many years. I mean, you mentioned at the top of this that, you know, it was amazing that I was able to turn around quickly. No, it's not quickly because no one trusts the guy who steals everything. So it took a lot of time for me to build up trust within the cybersecurity industry. And that uh, that took a lot of work. It took me, uh, um, you know, you have to be able to to show that you can be trusted, that you are doing good. No one's just gonna take your word for it after you've been the guy who victimizes everyone. So I, I work hard every single day to to help people and not hurt people. And fortunately, you know, people like Kevin, they recognized that. They they saw that I was serious about the work that I do, and I'm I mean what I say about protecting people. I'm very skilled at uh, being able to um, to find the crimes that are being committed, and talk about that and educate people on that. Um, and he brought me in as chief criminal officer, and uh, I got to be. You know, Kevin's right here right now, but I got to be honest. I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunity that's been given. I lead a, I, I lead a blessed life that I probably don't deserve, but I'm damn grateful to have.
1: Kevin, I just wanna hear your side of this story. What compelled you to create the first ever chief criminal officer position uh, and, and bring Brett on to fill that role?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. It is obviously a bit of an unusual concept uh, and a lot of skeptics I would say around this idea uh really everything we've seen you know we work with some of the biggest companies um out there fortune 500 all that kind of stuff and you know what we've always focused on is the adversary's perspective what can we do to make the companies we're working with not attractive you know we we monitor things like telegram we're in discord communities wherever all the adversaries are hanging out, talking about attacking and defrauding our customers, we're in there with them, understanding what they're doing, how much money they're making, how much it's costing them to make the attacks. And, you know, we've been doing that for a few years. Um, You know, we, uh, like, there's, like, I, I remember I did a presentation at RSA, and we used, like, the art of war from Sun Tzu as an example of, like, this is the way you should fight fraud, is, like, make it so it's not worth going after in the first place. Like, if you're an attractive target, get too difficult to go after, you're not gonna be able to get cash out, all of those kind of things, then they stop. Like they actually will will actually cease attacking. And, you know, Brett perfectly aligns with our philosophy at Arcos, which isn't like trying to build a silver bullet to stop people from logging into something. It's just to make it too damn difficult and expensive to bother attacking those surfaces and go somewhere else instead, go get a real job. Um <laughs> and, you know, the, the people we work with the fraud teams the payment teams the identity teams the risk teams of these huge companies really don't understand the adversarial side very much like they very much treated as we're under attack let's figure out how to mitigate it versus mm-hmm. understanding the why they're under attack the what's a better strategy for making it not worthwhile attacking them and that's kind of where we come in from both the technology standpoint but even from like a partnership standpoint and having people like brett on our side truly really make them understand what is it that's making them a lucrative target and why is it occurring is awesome and it's a great chance for them to ask somebody that's on the other that's from the other side like they've never had these opportunities to do that so it's it's just an amazing opportunity to kind of um, level up the experience of the whole industry uh, by partnering with somebody that's kind of been there done that you know
1: Right. That, that experience is clearly very, very applicable. I took a, a security class at Michigan and, and all five of our projects were, uh, you know, from the perspective of the attacker. We had to pull off all these different types of attacks. And, and by doing that, you realize, hey, we need to sanitize the queries and all this type of stuff. Uh, but you see it firsthand is like, oh, there's a weakness here. Make sure I don't do that. Uh, sp- speaking of potential weaknesses, how do we regulate and make crypto more safe? Without harming innovation, and, and I 'll open this up to either of you.
4: You want to take that first, you want me to so go <laughs> you know it's 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 I watched some of those hearings, and those were very disheartening because you could see it in the senators' faces. They had no clue about any single thing that was going on, and they had aides that had to try to explain it to them almost constantly. I am not confident that those people should be making regulations. I'm not. I I feel that if you're going to make regulations, and it's very important that we don't kill innovation, because if we kill innovation, it's going to it's going to cause a lot of harm overall to every economic aspect of everything. So I, I think it takes regulation from informed individuals. That's one of the things I think that that web 3.0 kind of promises is that community governance all of a sudden you've got people that are educated or hopefully are educated that are making proper decisions if we can't get that then hopefully hopefully and i say hopefully but it would be nice if if the government if they will be to put in regulation That they bring in individuals that know what they're talking about and what needs to be done that doesn't destroy innovation but we have to do something we've got so many rug pulls out there we've got so many of these you know social media scams you know blockchains tend to tend to be very secure so you always look at compromising the human or that every outlying area that's not the blockchain in order to make money or you attack the bridges which tends to be very profitable sometimes Mm -hmm. (laughs) so but I I really think that it takes an informed regulation we can't just willy-nilly say we're going to do this and try to apply things that have worked with other markets to crypto because it's not the same yeah I think
3: from an adversarial standpoint you know we've seen regulations like PSC2 in the payments field in Europe adds a huge amount of friction to adversaries trying to commit crime so Unfortunately it also adds a huge amount of friction to legitimate customers and consumers wanting to pay for things. Um, but those kind of things do trend towards making it more difficult for criminals. Obviously KYC, no customer, AML, those kind of things are all making it that much more difficult for our adversary to go and buy stolen identities, you know, open wallets, move money through those things. You know, we're seeing a lot of fintechs be used as kind of, you know, money laundering services to kind of clean up these kind of things um so you know more checks and balances is good but it has to be adaptive uh if you're applying high degrees of friction you're going to obviously hurt the uh the adoption of things like this right it's just too hard to buy or too hard to transact like you're kind of going against the nature of what we're trying to achieve obviously things like cold storage is awesome all my crypto is in cold storage but i haven't touched it for years it's pain in the ass to go and you know leverage it right so there is an interesting trade-off here between security, user experience that we've really got to balance. Compliance is helpful in some degrees in that it levels the playing field. If everybody is regulated and has to do the same thing, that's the expected norm for the user experience. Like PSD2 isn't really getting traction in the US because it's just such a high degree of friction. No one wants to do it, but in Europe, they have to do it. So everyone's got it. So it's a level playing field from that perspective. So I think there are benefits in like, you know forcing certain requirements because it does you know, means the whole barrier to entry goes up across the whole ecosystem.
4: Yeah, it's a, it's a a dicey field, that's for sure. Well, I mean, you you mentioned it. And that's, that's the important thing. That's really the important takeaway, you want to cause friction on the criminal side, but not cause any friction for the legitimate user, that becomes the importance of everything. I mean, that's, that's one of the philosophies that we at Arcos have, you know, you cause friction for the bad guys, For the good guys there's no friction because we want you to engage we want you to innovate and i i really think it takes that understanding of that type of philosophy a lot of people don't understand that you know yeah you can stop all fraud all every place if you just don't do any business whatsoever (laughs) that's not what you want to do
3: yeah you want you want to have context appropriate friction so you, you want to do something that's the most expensive thing for an adversary to get through in the context of what they're trying to achieve that may not be that much friction for a good consumer to go through the same degree. So it's all about like, what's the context of the attack social engineering you want to use mm-hmm. defenses, very different, like, you know, credential stuffing or automated attacks. Like you've got to make sure the context of the defense matches the attempt of the attacker. Uh, cause that, then that way you can, you can apply the right defenses at the right point in time and not blow up the user experience side. It's a, it's a finicky balance, uh, especially as all these companies are building these amazing, uh, you know, apps and services around this they've got to figure out how to be not a lucrative target for criminals while also being a, a very lucrative adoption platform for consumers you guys you have a question Ryan?
2: I was just gonna, yeah, I was going to ask, what's more common, scams in NFTs or scams in DeFi? Because we see all over Twitter, oh, these bored apes get their apes stolen. It's more tangible, right? More people care about it when you can see, oh, this is my NFT, this was my grail, and it got stolen. Uh, I'm sure there's tons of DeFi hacks as well, but it's less interesting to go out and tweet, I just had all of my tokens stolen, right? So is it more common to see NFTs stolen these days, or are DeFi hacks more common?
4: You know, and Kevin may have a, a better viewpoint on that than I do, but my view on that is it, whatever is more profitable, that's easier for the criminal to commit. All right. Mm-hmm. Always, always consider that a cash-based attack. If I'm looking to steal money, I'm looking for the lowest point of entry that gives me the highest return on my investment because every single one of these attacks costs me the criminal money. So and I'm not looking to put out a lot of money on an attack that may not be successful. So I'm looking for the easiest entry, largest return on investment. If that's at that point in time, if that's NFTs, outstanding. If it's DeFi, outstanding. I'll choose the easiest path.
3: And there are entire communities dedicated to both. And they're different communities, just so you know. Some the same attack is going after both. So NFT sniping I suppose you might call it there are literal development communities you can go join them on telegram or on discord and they just write software and then the community uses that software to go make the transactions and buy the assets and these aren't small communities like I'm in a couple that have you know 40 50 000 members I'm looking at them now and it's just like there's a ton of activity they're talking about like who recently got some inventory like all that sort of stuff. Yeah and pay
4: attention he said 40 to 50 thousand members all of them looking to profit through crime okay. and they all share and exchange information they all work together in order to hit these systems and profit What
2: do you say that DeFi hacks are technically harder to execute? Because a lot of the times I see NFTs stolen, it's because they give away their seed phrase or they click a phishing link. Uh, So it's more social engineering. Whereas when I look at DeFi hacks, usually there's some type of bug in the smart contract or some loophole they were able to find.
3: I think that's a fair statement, I'd say the exchanges are very uh, like a lower target altogether because they're not typically taking money offline, right? Like you're logging in and able to access it through an app and things like that. So you see the same kind of attacks you can make against the bank against the exchanges. Uh, So
4: it's, uh, it's all stack ranked, I would say, I would agree. And I would also say that, you know, those those initial attacks on DeFi, while they require a degree of sophistication, what you tend to see is once those attacks are ver- are considered valid from the attacker side, that it works, well, that same attack tends to work on different DeFi attacks as well. So mm-hmm. while it starts out as sophisticated, it becomes more ubiquitous as time goes on.
1: It seems like social engineering is maybe the biggest problem that's out there. Uh, would you agree or disagree? And like what types of activities do you do to prevent social engineering? Is it training? Is it, you know, requiring s- some specific password security? Uh, you know, how do you combat this? I would say bots and automated attacks are the number one problem. Interesting. And what does that look like? Gavin?
3: So you can actually automate things like social engineering. You might think it's social engineering, but you can actually fully automate that process nowadays. Uh, there are programs built that will actually automatically dial people they will come up with very creative schemes and scams very creative scripts that they'll automatically read out to you and they can do this at whatever scale they want that's the beauty of automation is that you can literally go after everyone you can possibly target um you know phishing uh is a form of automation as well like you're sending out at scale emails you're setting up fake landing pages they actually automate the process of, as you're entering your details in a fake landing page of hitting the authentic real landing pages, backend APIs in real time. So as you type it in, it's going to go actually call to their server. And if their server says, well, they need to go to type in your multi-factor prompt, it'll actually present that to you on the fake site saying, type in your multi-factor prompt. Hmm. Then it's logging in on your behalf automatically and taking a hold of your assets uh, automatically. Um, So there's a ton of automation at play, it might not be bots in the the sense you may think of, but all of this is uh, heavily automated, you know the whole. um, crypto scams that you see on social media those posts uh, that stuff's kind of automatically handled as well, you know they're immediately looking for certain trigger words and things like that and then posting articles with links. All kinds of fun stuff and they do it because it works they wouldn't be doing this if it didn't work so right. you know people are falling for it unfortunately so there is a nature of social engineering in the sense of like how they present it and how they make it look trusted how they make these accounts look legitimate so there is kind of a, an overlay of social engineering but in reality it's really driven by automation to get that massive scale so many consumers are now using crypto um,
4: right. and it's, it's, it's much cheaper, cheaper. it's, it's, it's because if you take the human work out of that, human work takes time, effort, and money. So if you can automate those attacks, it becomes much cheaper, scales up beautifully at that point. As far as your question of more traditional type of social engineering, it's very easy to compromise the human. You know, if, the, if you can get the human outside of policy, outside of the tools that are being that are supposed to protect that human, it becomes very easy to compromise that. So, and it takes a degree of trust. You know, how does a criminal establish trust online with a potential human victim, whether that be at a company or an individual? Well, it's a combination of technology, tools, social engineering. We inherently trust the technology, which is given to us, the phones, the cell phones, laptops, desktops. What we don't understand is that criminals use a variety of tools to manipulate that technology, something as simple as a spoofed phone call. So instead of seeing the phone number they're calling from, you see the FBI, or financial institution. They use proxy addresses so that their box may be located in Ghana, Nigeria, New York, but they can make it appear that they're in California, the UK, wherever they want to appear. They use spoofed browser fingerprints. So it makes it look like it's the, they're someone else's device, which is accessing the system. They use that to establish a base level of trust. And then at that point, once the base level is established, criminal comes in and we see how good of a con man, liar, AKA social engineer that person is in order to manipulate you into giving up information, access, data, cash. How do you solve it? Well, you're not going to really educate the human or make the human do anything. You look at credit freezes, credit freezes have been free since 2018. The adoption rate, 12% of the United States population has a credit freeze in place. 80% of the population tends to use the same or similar passwords across multiple websites. You cannot really rely on the human to do that. So it takes tools, technology, private industry to make sure people are protected.
1: Is this just going to become a bigger and bigger problem forever or is there an end game?
4: You know, I I don't think there's a reason that the unemployment, the employment rate in cybersecurity is zero, that we have every job that we can put out there is we're filling. All right. People are not looking for work. They're being hired. And we're still needing a couple of million cybersecurity people in the industry. And that's because this problem really it doesn't appear to be going anywhere. There's always going to be these issues. You look at attacks overall. Zero days are typically not the problem. The problem is is that 90% of every single attack uses known exploits. Known exploits, typically stuff that we've talked about for years Mm -hmm. that people have not addressed or done, creates a lot of that threat landscape that's out Mm -hmm. there. So until, until we're able to, to plug these holes and take care of these known exploits, take care of the problem that 41% of every router on the planet has the default password, billions of IoT devices are either hard-coded with passwords or have the default password. Until we take care of issues like that, uh, we're going to have some issues. <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned you uh, did some security
3: courses in uh, college. Sh- if this thing doesn't work out with streaming, you know,
5: it's a good <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Thank there you. you go.
3: I'm sure we'll
1: be talking shortly. <laughs> <laughs> Just check the markets. <laughs>
2: so, Brett, yep. for our viewers out there, I wanted to ask, what are some of the biggest red flags that investors can identify when it comes to being frauded in Web3?
4: Biggest red flags? Uh Trying to to just interact with the human gets you outside of whatever platform is there. All right. Um, if you're, you know, where are you getting your, if, if it's, if we're talking about crypto, for example, where are you getting your investment advice? Are you getting it from Telegram and Reddit? Well, that's not investment advice. That's an echo chamber of disinformation and misinformation that's designed to get you to keep purchasing and hold those tokens. So where are you getting your information? Are you verifying the information? Is the information on a blockchain that is kind of a, a, an established trust mechanism? So understand that, understand, understand the way that you will be attacked. The, the way a criminal will attack you depends on who you are and what you do and what they're looking for. All right. Design security around that. Be aware of your environment. I talk a lot about having situational awareness. We understand that in the physical world. You know, we're in a bad neighborhood. We understand we need to be aware of our surroundings, but we need to be aware of our surroundings wherever we are in the online world and in the physical world. Pay attention. We take that proactive response. You know, at Arcos, we are proactive in security. There's so much on the internet that. People respond in a reactive way. You have to be proactive in your online lives, not just at work, but every single moment that you're online because those actors are seeking you out wherever you are. That's what I would say.
1: So, Kevin, uh, I'm taking a look at at your homepage and it says you're backed by SoftBank, Wells Fargo, uh, PayPal Ventures, Sony Innovation Fund, crazy crazy list. These guys do not mess around. They see this, I assume, as a growing industry, uh, especially with SoftBank being in there. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of the company? Um, you know, How long you've been there uh, and, and what the future looks like?
3: Yeah, sure. So I started Arcos. Uh, I'm from Australia. I live in San Francisco now, but I started the company back in Australia. And I uh, You know, one thing is true of all Aussies is we're all uh, convicts by birth. So who better (laughs) run a security company, right? Um, I actually started in the health and biomedical space, uh, doing diabetes research, building technology to identify markers for diabetes and things like that. And then built technology for people with intellectual disabilities using computer vision software machine learning, those kind of things. And then, interestingly enough, kind of turned those concepts into a way of fighting bad guys on the internet, and uh, that's kind of where we started Arcos, um, a very successful idea that worked out quite well. I would say um, you know, we've been growing a lot. You know, we're one of the fastest growing companies in North America. Obviously, spoke to the investors. Many of those are customers that use Arcos as well. Um, and yeah, i You know, we we kind of started with a lot of the big security players in the b2b space uh our first customer was electronic arts actually wow. we met with bing gordon uh the founder of ea at gdc and we pitched our product idea to him like this was like six years ago and he's like your pitch is awful but uh <laughs> you know we got some problems uh we'll introduce you our security and ea and you know we got into uh a number of different franchises that still use Arcos this very day protecting their properties from a lot of attacks actually that are used against nfts in many ways nowadays so we did a lot of learning back then um you know now you know yeah we just we're just so fortunate to work with the kind of brands and, the, and just on the front lines of all the madness that we see like it, it ranges from romance scams to inventory denial the nft crimes you know play to earn real money trading in video games the big mmos were protecting those um and it's just kind of fascinating uh figuring out how people make money from half this stuff it's just really creative They're surprisingly entrepreneurial uh on the other side of the fence that we're dealing with and they work very long hours so they're they're very interesting adversaries to go up against
4: very long hours <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a lifestyle it is not an eight to five or a nine to five job right. lifestyle yeah.
1: And if the client does not want your services anymore, that's where Brett steps in, take them down, boom, right back.
3: We don't don't have that issue. Fortunately, our product works quite well, so we don't have that issue of losing customers. That's true. We don't really
4: lose customers once they're signed on. We don't have that issue. Fortunately not
1: speaks for itself. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today here on Benzinga. This was a wonderful conversation. Lots of laughs. Great, great vibes uh, to the audience out there. Make sure you go check out Arcos. Uh, hack the like button for us.
2: Ryan, do you have any closing thoughts today? No, nah, but this was one of the most original, most fun interviews we've had on Mooner Bus in a long time. So I'm really excited we got to do it again. Thank you, Brett and Kevin, for coming
4: on. You guys are outstanding. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, Logan, Ryan.